You're listening to Panel Borders on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Alex Fitch, and this is Resonance's weekly show about the world of comics. On tonight's show, continuing our month of shows looking at depictions of travel in comic books and graphic novels, I'm talking to authors Julian Hanshaw and Hannah Berry about their latest books, I'm Never Coming Back and Adam Tyne both of which are published by Jonathan Cape in the UK. Later in the show, in an interview recorded on the beach at Bexhill-on-Sea, I'll be talking to Julian about his collection of short stories and his previous graphic novel, The Art of Foe. However, before that, in a Q&A recorded at Ladies Do Comics, Hannah will be talking about her book, which depicts a group of strangers who meet on a mysterious train in the middle of nowhere, the connections they have between them, and the darkness and impending doom that surrounds them on all sides. Before that, here's a word from our sponsors. Resonance FM is London's only non-profit community radio art station who need your donations to help keep the station and podcasts on air. All the programme makers and all the engineers all work for free to bring you shows as diverse as The Bike Show, The Free University of the Airways, Hooting Yard... Speakers Resonance corner, FM accepts donations in the form of checks, credit and debit cards, radio, bank transfers, PayPal and cash. Go to www.resonancefm.com for more details. We also accept hobnobs and tea bags. Your donation means our continued existence. So I, uh, I'm a graphic novelist and I studied illustration at the University of Brighton and they were strangely against the idea of, of comics. I, I, they're probably less so now, but at the time they were very dismissive of the idea. So I, I did, I studied illustration, but I used to, I used to sneak comics in. So whilst I was there, I, I started working on a book about, because I, at the end of the, of the year they said, help yourself to any, do any project you like, anything at all, just to fill your portfolio, just fill your boots. And so I thought, well, I'll, in that case, I'll start on a, on a graphic novel that will take me three years. So I, uh, I started writing this story about a depressed detective uh, called Fernandez Britton and uh, his, his possibly real, possibly imaginary sidekick, who's a teabag, Stuart Brewlightly, and they, they would solve a murder mystery. It was more sort of a, a noir kind of a, kind of a thing. And then I uh, graduated and, and fell into all the, you know, the, the usual things that happen when you, when you finish art school. I tempt for, for a while. I thought, well, I'll send this off. I'll, I'll, I'll see if anybody's interested in such a thing. So I sent a letter to... I think I sent one letter to Titan and one to Jonathan Cape and said, would you be interested in, uh, in a graphic novel? Would you, would you be interested in such a thing? And Titan said no. But um, Cape said yes. So that, that book became uh, Britain and Brew Lightly, which is available in other shops such as Gosh, I believe, and all good retailers. So then I went on to my second book, and you know, you know they, they say that the, the second book is the hardest, or the second album is the hardest, or the second anything is the hardest. They are absolutely right. It's, it's awful. It's terrible. There's, there's, no, there's no, nothing prepares you for just, just how, how high you mentally set the bar and then how awful that um, thought process is throughout the entire thing. So I thought, well, I, I'll, I'll, go, I'll stick to what I know. I'll stick to what I like. I'll stick to horror, because I'm quite a, quite a big horror fan. I do love a bit of horror. And as far as I'm aware, well, not as far as I'm aware, as in my mind, there are, two, there are two schisms of horror. There's the, the violent sort of body horror, the, the gorno, if you will, the, the sort of the, the exploitational kind of thing, you know, with, with all, the, all the visuals and all the nasties and all the things, the things that make you go... Ugh. And there's the other kind. I, I, I like all horror. I like all horror. And that, this is all very, this is a lot of fun. But what I like more is the kind of the, the creepy, creepy, nasty, the, the thing that you, the horror that you take away with you afterwards, the horror that sort of sits in the back of your mind and gives you trouble sleeping. I don't know if you've, have you all seen the Japanese version of Ring, the original? The original and best. 
If you haven't seen it and if you like horror, I, I heartily recommend this. I, it's, it's, the, it's the finest thing. I, I had such trouble sleeping afterwards, I had to sleep with her. <laughs> I, was in, I was living in halls when I saw it and I, I'd sleep with a little towel over my TV. Genuinely frightening. So, horror, the first kind of horror, the, the gore, the, uh, the visual, the spectacle, it, it translates especially well in, in comics because comics are visual and film is visual and, and this is a especially visual kind of horror. But as far as I'm aware, there's, there's this main side of horror, the, the disgusting kind, but there's not, as far as I'm aware, there wasn't so much, I don't know too many creepy horrors, nothing, there's no comics which I've really, apart from from hell, which is, which is unsettling anyway because of the subject matter, but it's, there's nothing which has really profoundly unsettled me after I read it, so that was where I was going to go. I was going to write about my favourite, my favourite kind of horror, which is the, you know, the creepy, the creepy, soft, gentle, the subtle, the subtle horror. So this is, this is Adam Tyne, suitably dark here, which is a story about four strangers who are on the last train home, which is always going to be scary. And it's following them, but the story behind the story is there were a series of disappearances that were, that were taking place around the country. People were just vanishing. And uh, in their places, in their homes, in their workplaces, wherever they were last seen, they, there was a, a note which was found, a little yellow note, which seemed to... To describe something, it was addressed to the person, but it was—it seemed to describe something that they'd done wrong, some, some, you know, some minor transgression, something small. And people were, people were baffled. But eventually, a man was was brought in by the police, a man named Rodney Moon. He admitted to actually leaving these notes with people. He, had, he said he had no idea what was happening to them after. He didn't know where they'd gone, what had happened to them. But he was leaving them notes, and they said, "Well, what's what's happening to them? Where, where are these people going?" He said, "Well, that." I, I, I have no idea, it's some, some kind of something else, something else is taking them. And so in the story he's, he's acquitted because there's, there's nothing to, you know, the machinations of the law, there's nothing to really know that, that he's had any involvement with these people disappearing. And obviously the public are pissed off by this, and so there's a, a group of vigilantes which, which eventually reach him and do what they need to do. But this is all the stuff that's happened before the story. So the, the story is following the four strangers and it's about how they connect to the murder. They're not the murderers, but it's how they connect to the murderer. So it's, it's sort of the, the, subtle, the subtle side of guilt, and it switches backwards and forwards between them now on this train and their linkings, their connections to this, to this murder. There were a lot of challenges with uh, writing horror. There are many things that you cannot do with, with comics with regards to horror. Obviously in films you can have this sense of dread build up, you can have people's emotions toyed with by, by music and by sound effects, and, and it's sort of... It's, it's kind of insidious, really. It sort of creeps in, but you can't, clearly you can't do this with comics. And the other thing you can't do is have what you have in prose, which is this, this sort of an inner monologue with, um, with the character's thoughts. You could, you, I think in comics, thought bubbles are sort of, they're, they're sort of, seems a bit naff now, really. You can, get to, you can get away with it in some context, but it doesn't always work. And I think with, with this book especially, because I wanted to, to have it following the characters, but not actually, not focus on the characters, not sympathise with the characters, not, to have, not for them to have any control, just they were, they were pawns. So to have their thoughts displayed, it would give them too much uh, focus. So you can't have suspicions of things that they may or may not have seen. You know, the axe murderer six miles away, they might have seen out of the window. You can't have any of that. Or the creepy music issues, which you can't hear. The other thing that you can't have is um, surprise, <laughs> unless, unless you do pop-up, which I, I just haven't got the paper engineering skills, unfortunately. It would have been amazing. So it was, it was a challenge all around. But there are, there are many other things that you can do with comics, with horror, which I think are much more exciting, especially the kind of horror that I like to do. This is a completely innocuous scene, completely innocuous. There's nothing there at all, except, except there is. And there's a threat in it, which you don't, you don't immediately recognise. 
And it, it can take you completely unawares. It's sort of like um, surprise, I suppose. It's like something jumping out at you, except it's your realisation rather than some kind of physical force. And I think it, it has a much more psychological effect, much more, a much more profound psychological effect than just you know, increasing your adrenaline rush whilst you're you know, sitting eating popcorn. There are lots of elements which I've put in, which are these, these subtle, sinister elements, which you don't, you don't see them immediately, and possibly not even on the first read. You, know, you, can, you can find them years later when you pick it up again and look through. There could be something which you just didn't notice was there. And it's, it's all the more disturbing for the fact that it's always been there. It's always been there. I've not, I've not crept in the night into your house and, and corrected this page, much as I would like to. I've, I've, that's illegal, highly. Um, but it's always been there. And you just haven't noticed it until until now. The other thing that you can do with comics is metafiction. There's this an element of the, the story, the story outside the story. The story. Um, there are elements which are not part of the story, but they're they're sitting just outside it, between you and the story itself. My um, a friend of mine is. Do you know Emily Gravitt, the children's book author? When I'm doing when I'm doing the uh, the drawing, I go around to work at her house once a week because uh, you know it's it's nice to work in company. And she was working on a book called Little Mouse's Big Book of Fears, which is a, a book of things to be afraid of, which is made by a little mouse. And then you're, you're, the actual book that you're holding is the book that the little mouse has made. And as you read through, the little mouse is, is there within the book, and he's chewing up pages, and he's, he's weeing on them, and he's drawing on things, and he's kind of interacting with the pages himself. So there's, this is kind of an element outside of the book itself. And I, I, I thought, that's really fun. That would work really nicely for horror. It's you know, not necessarily a mouse, but it's, uh, it would, that, would, that would be quite fun to do. So I, I stole that idea from Emily Gravitt. And so in the book, the... Uh, the characters inhabit these the panels. They're very they're very limited in the in the real world and the same world in the in the kind of the these boxes which are which you know which all things inhabit in comics more or less. And outside of the boxes is is this especially in the in the now um, part of it which which is which is on the black background. The outside of the boxes is this sort of a presence, sort of a threat which is undefined but is is there and is kind of. Imposing on them, and an example of this is throughout the book, the um, the gutters between the panels on the on the black pages on the now when they're on the train, they uh, they slowly grow throughout the book. So it starts off with very small gutters and, and quite big panels, but towards the end, the panels are kind of disappearing. It's like they're being they're like the tiny little pieces of, of light, little bits of light which are winking out almost. They're being they're being compressed. This is the only time you see Rodney Moon, uh, the the killer, the not killer, who we knows who is the only time he appears in the, the historical part of it, in what happened then. And it's um, in the top there. And he's, he's creeping out into the, into the borders because he is sort of suggested that he has... There's something not right about him. There's something other about him. So he has that ability to, to sneak out in this way. And so sometimes I say it's quite subtle. Sometimes it's a lot less subtle and the darkness comes out into the panel itself. The threat kind of envelops the characters. It's like it's the, the, the background, the, uh, the darkness of the borders and the, the background is, is kind of an entity of itself and it's, it's interacting in, a, in an unpleasant way. One of, one of my favourite things that you can do with, with comics, which, which might be apparent if you've um, read any of, of the, the books that I've done, is, is you can make them really complicated. Because, <laughs> because people, that, I mean, people that read comics, are um, you, you can, you can, 
you can refer back to something. If there's, if there's an element which happens earlier in, say, a film, for example, you can't rewind the film, especially in the cinema. It's, it's impractical. You can't, if you're reading prose, you can't flick back as easily because you, you don't... I mean, text looks like text, and so unless you know exactly what happens and where, you can, you can lose your readers, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> um, if, you're, if you're writing prose, you can't, you can't flick back easily and, and read what's gone before. If you're writing a graphic novel, you can, because you have this kind of... A, a, I think visual recollection is, is much easier. So if you remember that there was a piece of information which was, which was dropped in on uh, an earlier page, uh, say, in, in, the, in the corner in a newspaper, you just flick back a few pages and you can see this thing here. So you can, you can drop in much more subtle elements, which you may notice, you may not, but you, can, you, can, you have the ability to go back and, and look through them. So they're, they're always available to you. Um, and as a result of that, I've, I've got some very subtle bits in it, very, very subtle. It's more of a second read book, because the first read, you, you take in the story and what happens, and the second read, you notice all the, the connections and the, the links and the little bits and pieces which just, just click everything into place, which tie everything up. There are some themes running throughout it, which uh, there's, this, there's this idea of, of cause and effect and of um, the, the, the actions of characters having, having reactions later in, in, the, in the story or in life. And so there's this Newton's Cradle which, which pops up and there's a theme of... I don't know if, anybody, if any of you read the book, but have you noticed the theme of the silver balls? Have you noticed the, the silver no. balls? Oh, that's how subtle it is! <laughs> um, so there's, there's this cause and effect theme and it continues with aspects of the story. When, when um, the story's switching backwards and forwards between then and now, with the, the white backgrounds and the black backgrounds, um, there are things which happen in, the, in then, which is uh, with the white backgrounds, which affect now. For example... Um, in the end of this one, he's dropping a little, uh, little Alka-Seltzer in, and the very next page, there's some, some bubbles appearing in the water. Just this idea that there's this slightly, slightly supernatural, but, but very direct kind of cause and effect happening from the, the actions of, of the characters from previously to, to now. Just a little visual thing, but nobody noticed that, did they? <laughs> <laughs> Two subtle words. Maybe the sixth or seventh read, that'll, that'll be apparent. Another thing as well is that none of the characters have names, because... The thing with horror is that you, you need to identify with the characters very acutely, I think. And if you give somebody a name, it, it gives them auto, almost automatically a personality. And, uh, you know, this, this person called Jim, I know somebody called Jim. They'll, I'll, I'll assign this, this, put the personality of Jim to this person in the book that I, that I don't really know. So I've, I've left them deliberately nameless because they're kind of blank. They could be, they could be anyone. It could be you, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> just, just putting that out there. So yes, yeah, so that that was that was uh, my book. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it's really achieved the goal I wanted it to achieve, which is to, to scare people. I'm not sure. It's not. It's not an intense fear. You know, it's not one that will make you have to have a little cry in a pillow or anything. It's just something that I hope that people will read and will you know make them think twice about getting the train. That, that kind of. That kind of what, what I'm doing is, is destroying First Capital Connect from from, from the outside very very slowly. I'm trying to erode their. Uh, Anyway, but anyway, I've, I've tried to, to make a little, you know, little horror, little horrorette, and uh, hopefully that will, um, hopefully I've succeeded. We'll see. Let me know. I read, a, I read a review, and it was, it was so cutting. It said that it's, it's a nice book, but I, I don't know if it's worth reading. Again, you're missing everything, and it's, it's quite short for that purpose. So you can, you can read it again. Or you can just get it the first time if you're some kind of you know, genius. I, there's a lot of cameos in the in the first one. There's there's um there's only three in fact in this one. There's there's me on there and uh, Zav in the background there. He's he's here, looking shifty. And um and my friend Gerard and that's it. No, there's a lie. Um, if any 
Uh, no, he's certainly not there, filthy sorters. Um, there's uh, a cameo from the first book, and that's all I will say. Well, it's it's kind of a puzzle. Do people want to do people want to hear, or should I? Should I? Okay, if, I'll, I'll I'll tell you afterwards <laughs> when we're not recording. And um, that's it. I'm done. For more information about Hannah Berry's work, please go to www.randomhouse.co.uk stroke authors stroke Hannah dash Berry. Next, here's my interview with Julian Hanshaw about I'm Never Coming Back. The collection includes the award-winning short story Sand Dunes and Sonic Booms that you did for the Comica Observer competition and a selection of short stories you did between 2008 and 2010. Where did your graphic novel, The Art of Foe, fit into that? Was it done in between the short stories? The Art of Foe, I handed in to Dan Franklin, Jonathan Cape. Yeah. And then literally started... I'm never coming back straight on the back of that and obviously okay. the process takes a year, just over a year to get into into the bookshops. So by the time the Art of Foe was ready for release, I was ready to repitch mm. all these ideas to Dan. So pretty much straight on the back off. Okay. Yeah. So basically apart from the Comica story, there wasn't anything in the collection that you did before the Art of Foe? No, absolutely not. And then obviously beginning to try and make the book all the, the stories weave and mm. bring the comic a piece in so it felt like it was part of yeah. the mini stories. The stories vary in length from one page to anything. I think the, the story about the a man who, or not as the case may be, in the diving suit I think is the longest in the collection right, yeah. which is about 30 pages. Yeah. Again, well, what I'd done, I'd drawn all the short stories and then when I'd looked at someone like Rutu's um, Jamel... Gemelti, is that how you say Gemelti? Yeah, so. yeah, and yeah. other stories. And other stories, yeah. Loved the book. I just wished that there'd been a, a running theme or something. Mm. There is a theme, obviously, that mm. it's love lost and Israel and things like that. But I just quite like the idea of, say, the film shortcuts interweaving stories. Mm. So I went back and tried to use the, the one pages as little ties between the, the longer pieces mm. to, um, yeah, to try and make them flow as one, really. And also, was it the case that a one-page story is maybe an idea you had that you thought, I really want to get this down on paper, but I don't really want to extend it any further than the narrative suggests? Yeah, there, there was that, but I think there was also then looking at Sand Dunes and realising that the constraints that the Comica Prize had, which was a two-page a two mm. piece, yeah. I was quite looking forward to, and I almost set myself the goal of making it a one-page, A, for time, mm. and B, just to tighten my storytelling up a little bit. Yeah. Because they, yeah, you had the... The, the dive bomb, which was 16, 18 pages or something. And I, yeah, I just wanted to see if I could tell a story in a page. Mm. Some successfully, some maybe not so successfully, <laughs> but they're, they're there. They're definitely there. Mm. How much travelling did you actually do while making the book? Because it seems very much mm. the experience of someone who always wants to visit new places yeah. and you pick up new experiences. Everywhere in that book I've been to. Right. Um, so yeah, you, you got um, Mount Tidi in Gran Canaria, New Mexico, Truth of Consequences, Tucson. They're all places, and they're all for my sketchbooks and my photographs. So they're all drawn from experience. The only place I hadn't been to was the last one, Johnson Atoll, which I very much like to go to <laughs> if at all possible. But that's the only one, and that was purely done on referencing, googling, mm. things like that. But everywhere else, I had been to. And like you said, you wanted to tie the stories together mm. uh, thematically. So there are 
reoccurring tropes, something like your interest in crabs, which reappear as yeah. both uh, actual animals and, I guess, kind of spirit guides. Your uh, construction of pages in terms of your panels are quite regimented at times and then at other times more experimental as if you're going from a structure on some kind of improvisation and then back to the the structure almost like jazz in a certain sense that combination of looseness and something that's more structured is that something that appeals to you as a storyteller it is yeah what i'll do i'll I'll thumbnail Mm. i'll then put all the sheets up on the wall and see how it flows i'll add a splash of color to each one just a wash a basic wash Mm. so you've got the, the tonal qualities that go on there and then sometimes i will feel it's looking too formal it's looking too tight so i'll try and break down the page set up Mm. that worked definitely for this book whereas my next book I'm working on I'm sticking to more of a a nine panel grid keeping it quite formal might be the odd break in there but it is something whereas faux was a completely uh, kaleidoscopic approach Mm. to storytelling each page was different in tone, texture and stylistics definitely this one was slightly tighter but still had the odd room for a jazz solo in there somewhere (laughs) and then bring it back to the panelling. It's something that really does interest me. It's also slightly skittish mind as well. (laughs) It allows you to meander a little bit. Mm. The stories are thematically linked both in style and terms of the panel breakdown and storytelling but then individual stories will have different colour palettes to each other like one will be almost entirely sepia one will be based around greens was that somewhat based on the colour schemes you saw in the places that you visited or was it something more primal than that? Purely uh, reference points for colours Tucson, washed out okra type of deserty The one at the end, the Johnson Atoll, I experimented with um, giving that kind of uh, kind of grain and colour qualities you see on 1950s um, military footage of mm. A-bomb tests and stuff. It's got that very... The blues and the yellows are very punched up. So that took a, a while to experiment and kind of get nailed down. Um, yeah, they're, they're all... The one set in Winchelsea, which is just along the coast from where we are in Bexhill... Again, it's, it's, it's the only desert in the UK. Mm. So again, it's back to the yellows and um, the brush off, off Tucson and places like that. So, huh. And again, so that links all these places as well. I don't think there's any wetlands or anything in there. They're all quite dry and yeah. it's places I feel very comfortable in. I had no idea that Winchelsea had the only desert in the UK. What's, what's the definition of a desert then? A beach well, that is wider than a certain well, <laughs> distance? Well... I'll probably set over sail Winchelsea a bit. The <laughs> Winchelsea's on the edge of the desert, which okay. is mainly Dungeness, okay. which is Rhine Nature Reserve that goes into a lid firing range mm. and into Dungeness. It's a, it's one of the sunniest places in the country, the most sun per annum or whatever it is. Perspiration, all those kind of things. Mm. And, and that's it. And when you're out there, you could be in another country. That's what I love about it. It's, um, it's very otherworldly out there. You know, hence mm. Jarman loved yeah. being out there. And my first reaction to it with sonic booms is mm. it was that otherworldly nature of the landscape and these odd, peculiar concrete structures. Mm. Yes, uh, they tie in well, the, the deep sea diver and stuff. It's kind of ballardian landscapes <laughs> really appeal to me. 
your your book, The Art of Faux, seemed to be very much a one-off in the graphic novel world. I can't think of any <laughs> other book that... Uh, I, well, no, I, I mean, I can't think of any book that combines travelogue and recipes and magical realist storytelling. When it came to the follow-up, did you find yourself under a fair amount of pressure to do something unique again? I mean, Dan didn't ask you, could you put some more recipes in this one as well? No, I think, <laughs> I think Dan took quite a big gamble with folk mm. and I think Dan does take quite a big gamble with a lot of books you know you saw the one walking the dog um, mm. things like that. you know they're, they're kind of strange oddities pushing the barriers a lot of the graphic novel sense I think mm. Faux yeah is a one-off oddity and I knew it was and I, and I had to I felt like I needed to do something a little bit more traditional mm. so I wasn't seen as maybe kind of a not a one-trick pony or someone who does something that's just wasn't considered a zany bitch basically <laughs> so I, I tried to rein it in a little bit because, mm. but Faux for all its like, I think some people really didn't like it and some people got it and enjoyed it mm. I think it worked because it was my response to the chaos and the weirdness of mm. Saigon mm. and that was it that was that was it in the nutshell for me and yeah I think it because it, it's then got on to be a motion comic mm. And has kind of got a lot more recognition in that sense than it did in the graphic novel huh. first time round, which is a bit disappointing in some respects. But that's just that's just the nature of the beast. But Dan didn't put any constraints on me whatsoever. Mm. He, he saw the book as it was. He had a couple of pointers to make. Nothing because Dan's not really hands-on mm. editor. A few little pointers to make, and that was it. He loved it as it was. I'm never coming back. So yeah. he was happy with it. I was happy with it. Mm. Presumably, one can't make a living doing a graphic novel every couple of years. Are you a professional illustrator on the side? Yeah. I illustrate for, funny enough, a, a restaurant trend called Faux. So I get monies from Faux. I've, I've got an illustration agent, but that doesn't conjure up much. It's, mm. it's, it's feast or famine. Okay. Sometimes things come in, sometimes things don't come in. But also, I'm trying to do other projects simultaneously. So a lot of, there's a lot of plate spinning. Mm. Um, I'm, you know, I'm working on my third one now for Top Shelf in America, but I'm also looking at children's books and I'm mm. writing a script for Channel 4 and things. So there's, I'm having to diversify slightly <laughs> because, as you quite rightly said, you just can't make a living on it. It's, I guess you'd know more than me. There's probably, mm. what, Ware, Klaus, Burns, Seth. can't imagine many more. That and you haven't it. mentioned the Brit yet. <laughs> no, well, no. I mean, seriously, who, yeah. who would you say Brit-wise? Dan, Dave McKean? Maybe. Maybe. Or I, I guess you'd have to have a regular gig yeah. in a weekly comic like 2000 AD sure. or The Phoenix, and even then, perhaps, you'd still need to do other work on the side. Yeah, I mean, I did some work for Phoenix and hopefully we'll do some more for them fairly soon, but, yeah, I can't think of any Brit that will, mm. that will make a living. It's a, it's a niche market, isn't it? Yeah. Even though it's getting a lot more recognition now, it's still advances aren't... It, you work out what that paged pound ratio is mm. it's it's below minimum wage yeah. without a doubt and presumably for you you also have to juggle traveling in amongst your other responsibilities because it seems to be something that's very much important to you mm. in terms of inspiration for the comics uh, that you produce yeah my money's go towards travel <laughs> travel <laughs> and beer i guess uh, i haven't got any hair to maintain so that's always a bonus yeah travel is very very important to me it reflects everything in my Again, next book, it's get set in a desert again, mm. set out in the American desert. 
yeah, it does come back to the UK. It's an English character, but travel is is it's of the essence. Mm. I haven't got any children, so travel is my is my kind of vice, really, definitely. Mm. And has that always been the case since you were old enough to to leave home and pick up a suitcase? Yeah, it always has. Um, uh, the first story in there set in Heathrow with brother and myself coming back from New Zealand. We mm. did we emigrated to New Zealand as children. My parents have always been travellers, mm. um, and we I guess we've picked up that gene. We've always been trotting around, and my my wife has always travelled. So I hate aeroplanes though. <laughs> I cannot abide aeroplanes, but that's just one of the things you have to get over to get to get where you want to go, I guess. Mm. Cool. Thank you very much. <laughs> like Hannah Berry, Julian Hanshaw's work is available in the UK from Jonathan Cape, and you can find out more information about the author at julianhanshaw.co.uk. Hannah Berry's presentation was recorded at a meeting of Ladies Do Comics earlier this year and the monthly discussion group for female comic book creators and their fans returns this Monday, the 22nd of October, at the Rag Factory on Henyard Street off Brick Lane in East London. This month, guests include artists Simon Grennan and Lucy Lyons, and writer Faye Trier. You can find more information about that at ladiesdocomics.com. That's L-A-Y-D-E-E-Z docomics.com. Hannah Berry's presentation was recorded by Nicholas Streeton and the interview with Julian Hanshaw was recorded by Alex Fitch, who edited and introduced the program. And you can hear an earlier interview that Dickon Harris did with Julian Hanshaw shortly after winning the Comica Prize in 2009 alongside a couple of hundred other podcasts of the show on my blog www panelborders.wordpress.com and panel borders will be back at the same time next week thanks for listening